Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today, we'll be talking with William S. Belko about his biography of the 19th century politician and jurist Philip Pendleton Barber, entitled Philip Pendleton Barber in Jacksonian America, an old Republican in King Andrew's Court. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you. I was wondering if you could start us off, Steve, by telling us something about yourself. Well, I... I'm no longer a scholar, I guess you could say. I used to be a professor, but now I'm the executive director of the Missouri Humanities Council, returned to my home state uh, to do humanities programming statewide. So um, that has consumed my life <laughs> for the last year and a half, and hopefully will consume it for the rest of it. <laughs> so took away some time from writing books and articles and teaching to do this. So Interesting uh, job. What was it that led you to write this book? Does uh, Barber have any sort of connection with uh, Missouri? Very, very slight. The two of his sons actually died in St. Louis during a cholera epidemic prior to the Civil War, but that would be the extent of it. Uh, the real reason behind it, and um, it probably should have been my second instead of my fourth book, and I had started on it early. When I was in grad school at Mississippi State University, uh, my mentor uh, and director of my uh, graduate program, uh, Charles Lowry, had written a book on uh, James Barber, the elder brother. And back in 1984, and published also by the same press, University of Alabama Press. And um, I was kind of searching a little bit to alter my the dissertation at that time. And he kind of put a little bug in my ear. He goes, "Well, if you ever want to change it radically, uh, Philip Pendleton Barber definitely needs a biographer." And I always remember that. And uh, as soon as I took over a position uh, as a associate professor of history at the University of West Florida. I decided to embark on it, and uh, several books and many articles later, I finally decided I'm going to do this one. And it, I guess there's kind of a little bit of an irony to that, because it could be my last one, I hate to say. <laughs> um, so uh, who knows? Uh, the current position is tough to keep on publishing. But that was it. Uh, it always had sparked an interest in me. And that is really Barber's era, that, that early Republican to the Jacksonian America, is, is truly the heart of, of what I love to study, uh, what I love to teach. And so it was, it's a, a perfect book for, for what I wanted to do. Hmm, fascinating. What was it about Barber that interested you so much? Well, you know, there was, I, I just like his old republicanism. Uh, they had always uh, kind of, I guess, enticed me in some ways. In fact, uh, my daughter is named after John Taylor of Caroline. So for some reason, there's an affinity for that group. Um, that always, the anti-federalism into the Jeffersonian Republicans and the old republicanism. The other aspect of it was is my key area is Jacksonian America as a Jackson scholar. Uh, it always kind of intrigued me how many of these old Republicans somehow drifted into Jackson's ranks. It just uh, on the surface appears that that should not happen. And I had even taught a course uh, one time, a graduate seminar on the old Republicans themselves, just, you know, on their their history, their writings, things of that nature. And that's one of the things we explored as a as a class together because I didn't have the answer to that. And it slowly, gradually came out uh, in that course. And I thought, well, you know, I'm going to use Barber as kind of that 
maybe a microcosm of just one singular example of how somebody who is an old Republican could become a staunch Jacksonian. And so the subtitle of that book is far more important than its main title. And that's kind of the an old Republican going into not only Andrew Jackson's administration, but literally his court as, as a Supreme Court justice uh, where he died. Uh, so there was always this intriguing question. And, and I got to explore the larger question by looking at a single individual and one that I had already embarked on research and really enjoyed writing on anyway. So it was a great experience. I, I'm surprised that it was that big of a question, given how in the book you make the evolution seem very natural. Well, sometimes I guess that natural evolution is, is, is not obvious until you just look at it. And so I kind of wanted maybe a, a little more of a slap in the face. And, and I think one of the ones that I did try to approach in that book was uh, the executive authority, the executive power. And old Republicans had long... Um, were jealous in so many words. Um, you know, they were suspect of executive authority from monarchy, as they attributed to Hamiltonian federalism. Uh, many of them, uh, not barbers, but his, fam- his next elder generation had fought in the revolution. And there's this classical Republican, uh, we don't like that executive authority, that executive power. And here, for the first time, is really the birth of the modern presidency, the imperial presidency. Um, they didn't know it at this time. Andrew Jackson came in for a lot of people to save the republic, um, but he did it by enforcing executive authority. And so that was a little nuance for them. Here they are now supporting the executive power, as before that they had opposed it. Um, and then there were some aristocratical elements to, to many of them. I remember John Randolph of Roanoke saying, I'm not a Democrat, I'm an aristocrat. But you've got to look further into that. This is also the era of you know, the rise of the common man, majoritarian democracy, universal manhood suffrage. And that, for old Republicans, might have been suspect as well. And, and, I, and I think Barber fit that time because there was a states' rights element to that, and that kind of uh, joined with him on that. But... Um, you would think that this planter would be an aristocrat, but he wasn't. And, you know, neither was Andrew Jackson, a planter, but never really an aristocrat. So mm-hmm. he fit that mold. I wonder if you could uh, go back a bit and talk a bit about Barber's background, his uh, family and his years growing up. He comes from a very, a very distinguished uh, Virginia family and heritage. There's no doubt about that. Uh, his father uh, had served in the American Revolution, the Committee of Safety, things of that nature, a vestryman in, in the parish there. So um, a, a planter, but a lawyer, but not a very successful one. Um, many Americans were in debt after the American Revolution, and uh, his father was no different. But it was really the two surviving brothers, uh, Philip and his elder brother James, who were very prominent in, not, in just not Virginia politics, but national politics. Uh, in fact, when Barber, during the War of 1812, the younger Philip, went off to the Virginia House of Delegates, his brother's governor, uh, was governor during the War of 1812. Um, when he would go off to Congress, uh, James Barber was in the United States Senate. Uh, in fact, um, they really had a parallel path. The great irony to it is, is that they diverged dramatically. Um, James Barber going on to be a prominent national Republican supporter of Clay and Adams and in Adams' administration, Secretary of War, going on to eventually die as a Whig. And here is his brother, an old Republican, that will be in the House, serve as House of Representatives, um, and, and, and eventually go on to the United States Supreme Court. And they were, I mean, 
couldn't be further apart in their political views. But as I look at it in the book, the end was the same. They just had two different views to the same end uh, of you know this. What what does the American Republic mean? Mm-hmm. And so uh, very prominent uh, the two of them. And yet, one of the interesting things in that uh, you you uh, observe in your book is that for all of his very uh, well-defined philosophy about government. Barber did not come from a uh, academic position in the sense of having uh, an extensive education or a, uh, you know, a, a grounding in the classics in the way that you might expect for someone who was a, uh, who had Barber's uh, subsequent reputation as a jurist. Yes, correct. Uh, in fact, he was really to a great deal self, uh, self-taught. Um, his father did not have the income to put him, you know, in maybe a, a foreign school, send him up to New England or, or across the ocean to England. Uh, he never had that possibility, so a lot of it was self-taught. Both both uh, James and Philip had to encounter that. Um, but he was socialized in a lot of that. I mean, that's all he heard on, you know, Sunday dinners. Uh, that's all he heard ever in family discussions or in local papers was this old classical Republican, this old Republican mentality. Uh, his, his county uh, was anti-federalist. Um, so he came from that, that tradition. It's all he knew. And so it was very comfortable to him. And so I imagine when he did pick up a bowling brook or read you know, uh, Cato's letters, it was very familiar to him. Uh, mm-hmm. And especially coming from Virginia, and you know, just being a young man, just getting his law degree with the Revolution of 1800, Jefferson's election, may have really inspired him and brought that out. But I, I think for the legal aspect, uh, everyone who knew him considered him one uh, outstanding uh, lawyer and jurist, mm-hmm. um, a very you know, clear mind, precision, logic. Uh, and so I think if it wasn't a little bit genetic, it was self-taught, uh, <laughs> discipline. And so it earned him a place in the Supreme Court eventually. How important was his legal career to his start in politics? Very, very important. Uh, really, the, his generation, if you want to look at it as kind of the second generation of, of this American Republic, especially the planter class, it, it, their power is dissipating. And many of the Virginia statesmen uh, are lawyers. They turn to the law. And law and politics were symbiotic. Uh, You really could not divide them. So if you were a lawyer, you're almost expected to be, especially if you're a planter on the side or a son of a planter, to enter politics. Uh, Just one followed the other. So it was very natural uh, for a lot of Virginians, especially for Barber, to do so. So it's crucial, that connection between law and politics. One of the things that uh, I always think about in terms of that connection at the time were the circuits, because you have these lawyers who were not, uh, who generally didn't have a fixed practice, but who traveled around quite a bit within a given geographical region. And one of the advantages that gave them is that they became familiar with a far uh, greater swath of people uh, socially geographically than if they had, say, been fixed to a particular uh, plantation or uh, a particular locale. Right. Yes. And, and Barber did travel a lot when he was a, was a lawyer, usually about in the five, six county area uh, around Orange County. Um, you know, eventually he did practice before uh, the United States Supreme Court. 
Um, but even when he was on uh, as a federal judge for, for the Eastern District of Virginia and then on the Supreme Court, he got the district that covered Virginia. <laughs> so he never really did travel, if you look at it in a larger picture. Um, in fact, uh, a lot more uh, justices had a lot more miles traveled mm-hmm. across the country. So maybe there was just a, a little bit of luck in that for him. Mm-hmm. So when does he make that transition from a successful and lucrative legal career into politics? Very early on. Um, he, he began his law career in uh, the year 1800 and entered the Virginia House of Delegates during the War of 1812 and then just served not even a full term there uh, and then was uh, elected in special election to go on to Congress uh, in 1814. And so he served there, except for one term, 1825 to 1827, all the way to 1830, when Jackson, um, you know, promoted him to federal court and then eventually the Supreme Court, so um, it, it happened relatively quickly and about right at the same age as just about every other Virginian would have done it. Uh, so uh, very early on, a very distinguished career at the, at the time too. You point out in the book that it is also part of a broader generational transition that's taking place in politics. How he comes to Congress at the same time as this very remarkable cohort of of younger, more uh, you know, uh, younger politicians whose experiences aren't of the revolution, the uh, drafting the Constitution, those those very initial battles. But he's part of that you know new generation that's now coming to the fore. Correct, and I, I call that the second generation, mm-hmm. um, the first generation coming out of, um, you know, the revolution and, and the early parts. He was born in 1783, which was, you know, the Treaty of Paris. So he, he, he's born in the same year as technically the United States is. <laughs> um, so uh, he is a second generation as well as his brother. And so they had this heritage. Um, they could feel it. It's very familiar to them. It was just around the corner, if you will. Um, and then, you know, with the War of 1812, really at the end of that, we start to see a, a new age, you know, the second, uh, the age of Jackson, 1815 to about the Mexican War. And you see this transition, you know, from a republic to a democracy. And that's very difficult to follow because, well, just what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but he is part of that, uh, that, that great transition from Jeffersonianism to Jacksonianism. And there's still debate today, well, was that uh, a transition in republicanism? Uh, and I argue to Barbara, for Barbara that is, uh, that, that Jackson is this kind of classical Republican saving the Republic from consolidation, centralization, um, kind of the, I guess, where we have Clay in the American system succeeding, you know, Hamiltonian federalism. Uh, so he sees Jackson and Jacksonianism as this kind of uh, rebirth of the Republic, and he wants to be part of that. Um, so he is a pivotal figure in the second generation. Now, some of them, of course, you know, um, were around during the Revolutionary period. He's probably one of the younger ones. Um, Andrew Jackson himself, you know, as, as a young man, young boy, if you want to put that way, served in the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe something familiar to turn to them. But uh, they never were really the third generation that sent us off to, um, you know, sectional discord, um, sectional disharmony, and eventually civil war and reconstruction. Um, so they're right in that middle, um, mm-hmm. a very important transition, because it's also what we call you know, that market revolution. Uh, mm-hmm. We start to see uh, the American economy changing in dramatic ways, and that will affect politics as well. And so he was crucial to that era. Another area where I saw that in your book was when you talk about his attitude towards slavery. He was a slave owner, but he was not a 
enthusiastic proponent of the institution. He did not see it as an unbidden or indispensable national good. Correct. He was not. If we, if we wanted to divide the, the southern slaveholder into two general schools, you have that kind of Virginia paternalistic uh, perspective, and then you kind of eventually get the deep south, uh, the Calhounian imperial aspect of slavery and slavery expansion. And he, he was not part of that, and actually in several occasions showed some disdain uh, for that. You know, He was not a supporter of Calhoun or a positive good slavery. Um, and that really comes to the fore during the Missouri crisis. Um, because he's a vocal uh, participant in that. Um, and so it's very difficult because today's eyes, we tend to look at it as slavery or pro-slavery, anti-slavery. And there was a much larger issue to that. And he was part of that, but he never defended it as a positive good. Uh, and he did struggle with it uh, to some great extent, um, as well as a lot of other Virginians did at the time as well. So, um, And that school will eventually disappear by the time we get to the Civil War and you get the... the reactionists on both sides uh, prevailing here. Um, but no, he, he did struggle with it. It was not necessarily positive good. Um, it was a, uh, you know, a legal juridical issue almost sometimes. Uh, and it was definitely a domestic question. It was something beyond the reach of Congress. and could only be touched by the municipal, the positive law of states. And mm-hmm. so that's, that's pretty much where he, he extended it. Uh, slave relations on the plantation were of that very uh, paternalistic nature. Um, so, in fact, I always recall that after he had died, his wife um, decided to sell most of the plantation and the slaves, and she refused to sell them unless they were sold as families and to be kept as families. Um, so, you know, it, it, slavery is by itself a natural evil, but when you're struggling with it at that time, that's something that we can't imagine, I don't think. But um, it was never biblically sanctioned. It was mm-hmm. not even really the natural... Uh, way of the African. And in fact, when uh, Africans were seized illegally, he was vociferous on freeing them, uh, even on American soil, because he declared them to be free, natural men. Um, So it's difficult to struggle with that. But slavery was really, when it comes right down to it, a legal issue. And it wasn't quite the hot-button political issue that it would become in that third generation that you mentioned. Correct, yes. And, and, you know, maybe there's a little serendipitous to to his career that he died while listening to the Amistad case. Mm -hmm. And all evidence is from uh, what he had left behind and what other justices had left behind, especially Joseph Story, that he would have sided with the court in that decision and had no qualms about it. But really the first, really, uh, I guess, Supreme Court case that really kind of spurred um, the slavery issue on was, you know, Prigby, Pennsylvania in 1842, but that was a year after he had, he had passed. So um, I, I don't want to call it fortune that he didn't live longer than he did, but he escaped really the, the Tawny Court's, um, I, I guess, reputation uh, of mm-hmm. being pro-slavery. Um, and we forget about that the first, you know, four to five years of, of Tawny's term is very, very important for the development of the American economy. Um, spurring on the, the market revolution. And uh, he was part of that. And there was really only the economic issues of the day that he participated in, not just in Congress, uh, but on the Supreme Court. Um, so I, I want to set that aside for a little bit later. I actually want to go, go back a bit and talk a bit about his uh, time in Congress, because you talk about how he does represent the, uh, ultimately in, uh, embodies the Jacksonian uh, you know, philosophy and his uh, a lot of his uh, 
you know, arguments and his uh, and his causes. But when he comes into Congress, it seems, and I, and, and I like the way you depict this in the book, it seems in many respects he, that he is on the losing side. That the, that the yeah. current of the times is against him in, in 1816, right. 18, 18, 18, 20. It is. We see the rise of judicial nationalism and economic nationalism, and they must go hand in hand to succeed. Uh, the Marshall Court would have never succeeded if it wasn't for um, the Madison administration supporting the judicial branch and, and joining with them, and, and somewhat under, under Monroe's administration as well. Um, but yes, he, he was a vociferous opponent of the American system. Um, he opposed the protective tariff. Uh, he was one of the first uh, uh, vocal uh, members of, of the House to stand up uh, and go against uh, protectionism and on behalf of free trade. Uh, he was a vocal opponent of federally sponsored internal improvements, and that's where he really cut his teeth and made his reputation as this old Republican, because they're the ones really going after the American system in the, in the, the four to five years after the end of the War of 1812. And he opposed the National Bank as well, uh, and that really comes to the fore during Adams' administration, and he really kicks off the bank war. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Jackson was not a very big proponent of the American system. Barber was further uh, along the spectrum against it as well, and especially the Marshall Court decisions that he sees upholding this economic nationalism. But during his lifetime, we do see a protective tariff, uh, one of the largest, the tariff of 1824. We do see the general survey, which is kind of a triumph for federally sponsored internal improvements. And of course, we had a, a national bank, the second national bank, coming out of the War of 1812. So it's kind of a strike three for him. Uh, by the time uh, Adams comes to the presidency, and with the corrupt bargain, um, the death of John Taylor of Caroline, he just says he's had enough. Um, you know, I've fought the good fight. I'm, I'm returning to Virginia to continue it there. Uh, and it was just only one term out of Congress, and his district came came back and said, "We need you uh, in those Jacksonian ranks." And uh, even opponents, you know, from Daniel Webster to Henry Clay, realized that if Barber comes back to Congress, most likely he will join uh, that growing uh, Jacksonian movement, and he did, and very vocally so, especially with uh, really firing the first salvos uh, of the bank war. And it was his bill to divorce the government from banking that got trounced. I think it was 127 to 9. Uh, but eventually that will be the bank war that consumes much of Andrew Jackson's presidency. Um, so, and he supported Jackson and Van Buren's uh, financial policy and banking mm-hmm. policy. So uh, it was really those economic questions that really drove him. And mm-hmm. I will add that there was a constitutional aspect to that. He was one of the first to bring up the anti-constitutional aspect of a protective tariff of internal improvements. Um, he was really probably one of the great and last defenders of those principles of 98, um, the Virginia-Kentucky resolutions. And... Uh, we've been talking about him primarily from an ideological standpoint. One of the things that we haven't addressed yet is the fact that his standing was such that in the 1820s, he becomes Speaker of the House of Representatives, which really speaks to right. his uh, influence and the regard in which his fellow congressmen held him. Yeah, and there's two aspects of that one. One was the respect, um, the, the practical, pragmatic aspect that this guy has the qualifications to be a Speaker of the House, the technical aspects, if you want to put it that way. Um, and, and, and support, a trust. Um, you know, many sides could trust him. But I think a real key to that is, is it was really Van Buren and his bucktails that were really going to get rid of the, the previous Speaker of the House, Taylor, who was seen as, you know, an opposition, an Adams man. 
and uh, Van Buren and his supporters eventually turn uh, to Philip Pendleton Barber. And that kind of really is another example of this growth of this Jacksonian organization, if you will. I mean, I think, uh, you know, uh, Van Buren wanted the, you know, the plain Republicans of the North and the um, uh, I can never remember, it's the, the farmers of the North and the uh, planters of the South, uniting that New York-Virginia uh, axis. And that was crucial, um, mm-hmm. since he's from New York and Barber's from Virginia, and that was the foundation for it. And uh, so it shows that um, Barber is not this pro-slavery Southern fire-eater that you know Calhoun will become. He never was that. He was always behind Jackson, mm-hmm. had supported Van Buren, opposed nullification, um, so it's cru- crucial to show that transition from his old republicanism to the Jacksonian ranks. Well, he, he wasn't always behind Jackson because you mentioned in 1824 he was a Crawford man, although a very tepid one. Yeah, there's there. He never admitted it uh, in the election of 1824. He never came out on any side. It was only they assumed that he would be a Crawford man because Virginia, you know, tended to be a, a Crawford state, if you will. Um, and so he was just labeled by others, but he never uh, publicly denied that label, um, didn't do anything about it, and he never really campaigned on anything that would have been Crawford. For a lot of old Republicans, uh, they were very suspicious of Crawford, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, which is a coincidence because he's running on those principles of 98, but uh, they're not dumb. The old Republicans did not really support him until well into 1824. Uh, and one of the reasons why is, is, you know, he had actually come out for the second Bank of the United States. He had uh, he served in an, what they considered an economic nationalist uh, Monroe administration. Uh, so he didn't have a perfect record on that. And so they just kind of held back on it. Um, but it was the corrupt bargain, uh, just how it was handled, mm-hmm. that really just blew Barber. Just He said, that's about it. Um, this is just not the government... Uh, I can't remember his exact quote, but he no longer does my political creed exist. Uh, it is gone. And that is actually, he put that down on paper in a letter to his constituents. He missed his, when he, when he left Congress in eight, yeah, after the election of 1824, uh, he was done. He preferred, you know, to be a lawyer. He defended to be a ju- uh, wanted to be a judge. Wanted to be close to his family. He's a strong family man. Hated being away from him. And for Scott, he needed a lot of attention. It's a major plantation. And so he, he just wants to return home. And one of the things he did say was, my political creed, my political maxim, no longer is prevalent. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's dead. And so, I mean, he, he was quite despair when he, when he left Congress. And that's why this period seems to loom so large, because this seems to be the key point in that transition from old republicanism to Jacksonianism. It's, it's, part, it's a stage in that process. It is. It is. There is a component of that. And it may be his leaving Congress uh, from about 1825 to 1827, maybe gave him that uh, outsider perspective because you know Jackson was considered in 1824 the real non-Washington D.C. the outsider, mm-hmm. um, and so maybe he, he kind of got a little bit of that in himself. Um, and, and when he did return to Congress midterm, uh, they even considered him for Speaker of House. Uh, coincidence there is that they selected another Virginian, Andrew Stevenson. Uh, instead of Barber, um, but uh, there you can see Van Buren really building the, this this axis um, between Albany and Richmond, and Barber is key to that, uh, mm-hmm. and especially with with his his, his bank war. 
policies. By this time, they, the internal improvements and the protective tariff are still major issues. We know the tariff of 1828, the tariff of abominations, as some would call it. Um, there is, you know, there's a reason why he was not as vociferous against that. He did stand up once and say, pretty much you've all heard me back the past 20 years or so. <laughs> rail against it. You know where my policies are. I don't have anything to add. But he's also noticing that there's really a campaign ploy to get Jackson elected, to help secure his election. And he is part of that. And in fact, he was on uh, the committee that, you know, to, and he was really motioning, hey, we've counted the electoral votes. Let's tell the world. He was part of that committee. He wanted to uh, present it to the Senate and then, you know, uh, let Jackson know that, hey, you're president. He's very happy for that. And it, expressed throughout his letters and his family letters as well. And how did Jackson recognize that support that Barbara gave him? Jackson, even from that bank war, there was a, a few comments that he had made uh, very positive about what Barbara was doing. And Jack, uh, Barbara, excuse me, was actually considered uh, one of the early uh, potential uh, attorney generals. Um, a lot of people, including Jackson, were looking to him to serve in his cabinet. Uh, and it looks like uh, the choice for attorney general probably should not have been made. Um, there's other reasons why Jackson and some of his supporters went that route. Um, you know, people during the day and even scholars later probably said it had been a better choice to take a second barber. Um, but uh, after the 1831 cabinet reorganization, that whole brouhaha, he again turned uh, to barber. Would you be in my uh, cabinet? And again, um, barber declined. Um, not in opposition, but he just didn't want that position. Um, so, and Jackson, you know, elevated him to a federal court, uh, put him on uh, the ticket, kind of, if you want to put it that way, with Tawney, uh, which is kind of a coincidence because Tawney became attorney general, <laughs> uh, and, you know, and Barber declined. And eventually, they thought actually that uh, Barber might be in the running um, for uh, chief justice if Marshall had dies or something. That he was at the top of the list on the opponents. The opposition thought. Jackson's probably going to appoint him. So, um, and eventually he did to the Supreme Court, kind of um, put him and Tawney together, but reversed him, Tawney for Chief Justice and uh, Barber for Associate Justice. So he was always there, uh, looming somewhere in the background in the Jackson administration. Um, and so uh, the only time that they had maybe a potential falling out, and Barber eventually nixed it, was in the uh, election of 1832, and it was not the presidential election. Everybody pretty much knew it's Jackson and Clay and over the bank. But the vice presidential selection, uh, you know, Jackson handpicked his right-hand man, Van Buren. And there was a movement not to put Van Buren on there through certain southern and western circles. And so the West tended to turn to another candidate, and many in the South turned to Barber. Mm -hmm. um, and it was very, very controversial. It went on and on through the campaign season. It wasn't until October that uh, Barber finally uh, publicly said, I am not a candidate for the office of vice president. And then he came out and supported uh, Van Buren uh, and opposed uh, some of the things Calhoun was doing. In fact, it was the first time that he'd come out vocally uh, against nullification. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, he, was, he was always, uh, Jackson had always turned to him for a variety of, uh, of reasons and, and, and uh, positions and posts as well. So there was a reward to be coming. And yet you stress in the book that he really was not drawn to those executive positions that he had long sought or long desired a position on the bench. Correct. Yes, it was it was always the bench and bar. Um, even when he was in Congress, uh, he, there was a lot of distaste to it. 
um, when he was there. Um, you know, he'd like to return to his family, and he'd always try to get his family to come up and visit him there. He was not very, well, I guess, uh, he, he didn't really like to go out in the circuits, as in the, the, the politics and society of Washington, D.C. He preferred to take a walk, maybe with his daughter who would come and visit, or read, things of that nature. So the, the federal government really was never a, that great of a lure to him, and that, that speaks a lot to that kind of old republicanism. Um, you know, because they always kind of had this anti-government, anti-centralized aspect to this. And he preferred a state. He preferred uh, to be a lawyer. Um, but he did love uh, the bench more than anything. And, um, and eventually that's, he'll, he'll die on the bench, mm-hmm. on the highest court. Uh, and he was extremely excited. The family was extremely excited when they were catching wind uh, that he was on the top of the list with Tawny. Uh, to be nominated. Um, you can see there's a difference between his comments about, oh, I got to go back to Congress for another term versus, holy cow, this is, uh, you know, this is one of the greatest things ever for my <laughs> life. Uh, so, yes, he did prefer, I guess, the juridical side, if he, if he wanted to be the judicial side. Um, and so it was nothing against, uh, at all, against uh, Andrew Jackson. He just did not have any desire to serve uh, in, in a cabinet in that capacity. Now, when Jackson names him to the Supreme Court and he is confirmed by uh, the Senate, uh, what is the uh, state of the Supreme Court at that time? Whose uh, views are in the ascendancy and where does uh, Barber fit in that uh, in that jurisprudential spectrum? Barber goes right with uh, the Jacksonian court. It is Jacksonian through and through, especially when Tawney takes over. It had gradually worked its way uh, that way with Marshall's death and a few others before that and, and some of Jackson appointments trickling in. But it's really Tawney and Barber who, who seal that. And it's the great uh, 1837 term where the, 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 the major questions are, they are economic. It's almost as if... Um, in fact, I think Barber made a reference for it that you know now we had, we had the, the kind of the revolution of 1828, and now we've got the Supreme Court's revolution coming in to secure this the Jacksonian uh, philosophy, if you will, of government and economy. And it was those three great Supreme Court cases of that 1837 term that really spur on uh, this market revolution, and it kind of shows that um, the Marshall Court is, is you know it, it had had its day, it had its purpose. And there is some continuity from the Marshall Court and the Tawny, but there is some dramatic change, too, that was needed uh, to promote the economy. Um, and they succeeded at that. And he was one, he wrote the opinion for one of those three terms. And so, um, or excuse me, one of those three great cases, New York v. Milne, uh, State Police Powers Doctrine. And so he really fit that, uh, that, that promotion of this kind of age, uh, the market revolution, if you will. Um, and so... And that was it, because he's only going to live uh, three and a half more years. And so really it was only the financial aspects of this, the economic, which fits everything. That's what he had, that, that was his main uh, slogan and maxim and, and you know, partisanship during his congressional career was to overthrow um, economic nationalism and the judicial nationalism that supported it. Um, protective tariff and uh, federally sponsored internal improvements, the bank, national bank and all that. So uh, it's kind of a fitting in for him. Um, could, could you could you explain a bit more about the Milne case and how that fits? Because you, in your book, you say it's the most important opinion that he writes during his time it, on the Supreme Court. Correct. It is, there's no doubt about it. And the state police powers doctrine will go on, no doubt, to the 19th century and to a certain extent, the early 20th century, good and bad. Um, the, the opinion has been, <laughs> been used for various purposes um, to to 
stop progress and reform, if you want to put it that way. But during this period, um, it really fit with uh, the other Supreme Court cases that are coming out of the Taney Court. It leaves the states and the people of the states, especially the state legislatures, who more directly represent the people than, than Congress. Um, I don't want to say the right, but the, they have the power, they have the authority to direct their own social and economic affairs. Um, because each state, each region of the nation is completely different. And eventually that will trickle up and build this great national economy, which it does. They, they, they do succeed at that. And as for New York v. Milne, um, there is some controversy by current scholars uh, with the slavery issue. I, I never found that in there just because um, not only is it not in there, uh, in his, his opinion, but never showed anywhere when he's in Congress or anywhere else. Uh, but basically he gave... Um, the, the co commerce powers of the government weren't in question. It was, uh, you know, it was, I guess you want to put it, state authority. It was mm -hmm. the right of, of the state to regulate uh, its economy, its society, to promote its own health, welfare, morals, its own safety. And that is strewn all throughout the uh, Charles River Bridge case um, that Tawney had done in that same term. And that is, is that, uh, the, you know, the, the end justifies the mean, and the end is the public welfare, not private interests. And what is ever good for the general welfare, what is good for the advancement of the general community, that's it. That's what we are going to decide on. Um, it's not so much A versus B and who legally is right, A versus B, but there's a higher C, if you will. And it's, it's, it's you know, society, it's the economy, it's progress. Uh, it's the advance of the economy, the advance of the interests of the people. And that's another very Jacksonian. Um, Jackson's famous quote, you know, the will of the majority shall prevail. Mm -hmm. And that, he, that, that, that fits with it. Um, so yeah, he because, stood with it in New York on that. Yeah, because the context of the case was that you have New York trying to, you know, they have a law that had been in place for about a decade and a half where they were trying to regulate uh, the, uh, you know, the entry of people into their state. Correct, and, yes. And what, yes. Go ahead. Basically, what they did is they said um, anybody who, you know, a ship coming in the port of New York would have to post uh, security, if you will. Uh, you know, I can't remember the, the amount of it, what it was, but to make sure that the, any passengers that exit that ship don't become a ward of society, whether they might be paupers or mentally insane or anything. You know, it's not going to be on the public charge of New York <laughs> to take care of this. <laughs> and uh, you had to submit a list of your passengers and all this. And Milne refused to do it because he said he violated pretty much interstate commerce. If I don't have to do this in Baltimore, well, I don't have to do it in New York. And, and Barber will go farther. He'll say this has nothing to do with interstate commerce. This has to do with the health, the welfare uh, of the people uh, of New York. It is you know, their determination. Their state legislature followed the will of the majority of the people. And the greater good of the community uh, believes and deems this law as necessary. And he went with that. Um, so... Hence your formulation. Would hence, hence the way you describe it as the as an action of the state police power. Correct. Yes, and and that really kind of goes back to his political philosophy. He always believed that in those those um, principles of ninety eight, the Virginia and Kentucky resolution, mm -hmm. that was really his bible. And part of that is that you know uh, not only decentralization, a strict construction uh, of the constitution, the reserve powers are always more important than. The delegated powers. The reserve powers must be jealous of the advance of the delegated powers. So part of that was the compact theory of the Union, that states never relinquished their sovereignty. They were sovereign beings. They'd only granted certain powers to a central government, and thus farther it shall not go. It's reserved to the people and the people of the states, and only they know what's best for their own good. 
another reason why he used that argument against the protective tariff. Um, so it, it's very pervasive throughout his thought, not only in Congress, but also when he gets to the Supreme Court. So the state police powers doctrine is just a continuation of his, his political beliefs and political um, practices while he was in Congress. It seems after reading your book that he would be much better remembered today had he continued on the bench, and yet he only had this uh, short uh, five, six-year period. What, how do you, uh, you know, what, what brought about his uh, early death? You know, I actually think um, he's lucky he died. I always hate to say that. It sounds so <laughs> bad. Um, and the reason for that was, and it was, I mean, I was really actually moved. I read letters from his children and his wife. It's it's a very, you know, uh, you know, death is far more prevalent back then than it is today. But, wow, uh, you could tell that a father and a husband, a dad and a husband had passed, and people are stunned and hurt for that. But, you know, I think he would have been tarnished as all of those very elderly second-generation Americans were because of the Civil War. Um, and that, I'm going to you know, throw in on the guilt that a lot of my colleagues, modern scholars, who I think look at it in 21st, late 20th century views. And um, I think Taney is one of the greatest Supreme Court justices, not for what he did in the 1840s and 50s and into the Civil War, but basically what he did um, for the Jacksonian cause, you know, an 1837 term and, and through the early 1840s. Um, and the same thing, you know, John Tyler, who's a very close, um, not a staunch old Republican, but you can maybe barely put him in there. But he and Barber were really early on in the 1820s, you know, opposed to that um, protective system, uh, the internal improvements, the bank war. They always fought together on that. Tyler pushed for peace as best he could. Um, but you see them now as... Um, Oh, I think they're they're tarnished. Rep, uh, Tawny's reputation is tarnished because of you know the, the onset of civil war, and I believe in Tyler and a lot of those others who are of Southern nature, Virginians especially, may be tarnished because of that. And I think he would have been. So they serve. So so Tawny and Taylor serve as models of. Uh, excuse me, not Taylor. A uh, Tyler serve as models of what might have happened to Barber's reputation. Had I, I think so. Tawny. Yeah, I can't see it going any other way, um, you know, and it goes along with a lot of, uh, if you want to call them, you know, these the Jacksonian Democrats, many of them who fought secession to the very end and only joined their states when, you know, secession had happened. Um, he probably might have gone that far. Um, you know, I think he would have been with Tyler to promote peace. He had always promoted sectional harmony and union, just as Jackson did. Um, uh, constantly. In fact, uh, in all of his, his speeches in Congress, uh, you know, against some of these uh, policies that he uh, opposed, he said these are these are fomenting sectional uh, animosity, disharmony. Uh, you know, has potential for cutting the cords of union, whether it's regionalistic or or however. And so he promoted we need to have a larger you know promotion of national harmony, just as Jackson would. He disdained disunion, and so did Barber. Vocally, but you don't know how you act when you're coming down to that very moment of 1861 or any of those, you know, that time period. Mm -hmm. And so I think he would have fallen right in uh, with all of those who were, you know, tarnished um, because of that era. Um, so unfor unfortunately, I, I guess fortunately, he died at the right time, yeah. um, right at the Amistad case, and left a legacy that was very, um, you know, I guess, consistent with what he believed um, prior defined, to his death. Defined by what happened in the decades preceding versus the decades following. 
Uh, one uh, for, for Barber, anyway, uh, in that slavery issue with the Amistad, um, he had actually, uh, in Congress on twice, there was the same issue, and one was the antelope, and I don't recall what the other one was, where he had supported um, the freeing of Africans uh, detained or, or captured illegally, not to be returned even to, you know, Spanish, uh, you know, possession, because you can't, because the federal government can't enslave. He was very vocal uh, on, on that, and that's kind of his... The Amistad decision that came out was really exactly in line on several major occasions that he had spoken in Congress prior, back in, I think one was 1828, and the other one prior to that, dealing with the same issue that came before Congress. And so it was very consistent. And I do put in the book those arguments he makes, uh, and they, they're almost the same thing. And so we don't know exactly what he was saying about the Amistad case, but we do know from Story and the other justices that he ardently agreed with them. Mm-hmm. Um, they had discussed the issue the night of his death, and they were all very unanimous and very happy. They all going to bed, they said, just probably stayed up too late because they were all having a good time, um, you know, enjoying their conversation and all. And so, um, yeah, I just hate to see what happens in 1842 with Prig v. Pennsylvania and the demise of state comity and mm-hmm. uh, breaking down over the fugitive slave issue, you know, how he would have got torn into that issue. Um, mm-hmm. So maybe a very <laughs> very good time to pass away, I say <laughs> that. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, Steve, I was wondering if you could tell us if you have any projects in mind for the future. Uh, I do. Uh, I got uh, as executive director of the Humanities Council. We have two major ones. Uh, one is uh, our state's Native American heritage, um, mainly with the Osage, but the other eight to nine uh, tribes that lived here, restoring their culture, uh, their language uh, back here in our state where they're from. Uh, we also have we just had some legislation passed in the state of Missouri recognizing Missouri's German heritage uh, and created a corridor um, and. German heritage is our state's most prevalent, by far, ethnicity, as, as well as is for the rest of the United States. And we're kind of taking the lead, and uh, we wrote the legislation, and we're going to study German culture um, from our state's founding, the 1820s, the first wave, you know, through World War One, World War Two, and uh, show kind of the um, history and transition of that um, to what it is today. But as for pure scholarly, um, I might just stick to a big event that's coming up here in my state, starting in 2018 and going all the way to 2021, and that's our bicentennial. <laughs> and if any state entered the union in the brouhaha way, it is ours. So <laughs> we do plan, um, in fact, the State Historical Society of Missouri and the Missouri Managed Council have been charged with uh, uh, the celebration, the commemoration of this, uh, from uh, creating a license plate uh, dedicated to it, to scholarly programs, things of that nature, publications. And so I think I'm going to turn back to the Jacksonian era once again but have more of a focus uh, on my state of Missouri and its entrance into the Union. So I might play a little bit of public programming with some little private scholarship. So that's where it stands for now. That sounds like a great you know, uh, opportunity that's coming up for you. It is, yes. I think and the whole we're, we're, the whole nation is going to turn its eyes once again to Missouri. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully we can make it a little more clean than it was last time. So who knows? <laughs> Well, Steve Belko, thank you very much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to uh, speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Uh, You too. Thank you. I appreciate the time.